Uh, Father, we thank you for this wonderful little letter of Jude. And we thank you for the, the opportunity to have it read to us and now to see Christ from it as we open it up for the next couple of minutes. Lord, please, as we do that, would you work by your Spirit to help us understand it, to get to grips with it? Would it challenge us and encourage us in equal measure? And we ask all of this for the great glory of your Son and the good of your people here today. Amen. Uh, well, I wonder, have any of you, are any of you Netflix fans? If you are, have you seen the, the series the, or the documentary Wild Wild Country? If you haven't, or if you have, it's a series about the Indian guru Bagran Sri Rajneesh and his community, I had to write that down, his community of followers in Wasco in Oregon. And it's this bunch of believers who come together, bless you, to create an international community where all are welcome, whether you're rich or poor, black or white, from the States or from overseas, everybody, they say, is welcome. And so they built this city in the desert and thousands upon thousands of people flocked there. It just sounds wonderful. It's like a little glimpse of Revelation 21. The community that sounds so attractive, so freeing, was so popular, except slipped in alongside the mantras, was the reality that this community was little more than a sex cult. The unbounded embrace of materialism and sexual indulgence. Godliness, this community set up as seeing the divinity of sex and just giving yourself to your desires. Now, more than that, its leaders were found to be those who routinely spied upon their members, drugging them, performing acts of terror all across the U.S. What initially seemed to be so good, yet contained such danger. Or maybe closer to home, what about the, the love is love movement we see in the U.K.? Have you heard phrases like this? It's not about the sex or gender of the person, but, but how they treat you. So long as you're getting the love and affection that you need to be happy, then it, it doesn't matter what gender is loving you. And if you're truly Christian, then you'll be on my side because, well, God is love. Here's what one author writes. He says, love is why God came. Love is why Jesus came and love is why he continues to come year after year to person after person. May your heart discover that this love is as wide as the sky and as small as the cracks in your heart that no one knows about. And may you know deep in your bones that love wins. Doesn't it, doesn't it sound so good on the surface? Doesn't it chime so well? And messages like that just slipping into the consciousness of believers and the buildings of churches across the country, across London. Messages that promise so much and I wonder, as we meet this evening, should we just go along with them? Does God have anything to say to us? Well, as we start our three-week series in Jude, both our passage today and, and the book as a whole is centred around verse 3. So have a look down at that with me. We do write, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. As we come to this letter this evening, don't let its mere 25 verses deceive you because they contain weighty words of real significance. 
Don't let the fact that it's one of those books you could never find until someone gives you the page number put you off, because Jude is remarkably modern in its take on culture. The church in his day was facing remarkably similar problems and challenges to those before us today. And so he urges the church then, just as he urges us here this evening, to actively contend for the gospel of God's grace. To contend against those who would twist it. So Jude this evening, if you're going to have one big idea in your head, it's just that he wants the church to be alert to subtle errors that would slip in. That we would be so captivated this evening by the true grace of God that we would willingly serve Jesus as Lord in in all of our lives. If you've got one of the the little beige handouts, there's a few headings on there. Uh, The first one we're going to dig into in verses 1 to 3 is a gospel worth contending for. And we see that at the beginning. Look down at those, the, those introductory verses again. I find it, it's just really easy for me to skim over these verses, as if they're, they're not that important, to get to the real meat later. But I want us just to dwell on them for a moment, because we believe that, that every single word in the Bible is both deliberate and inspired. It's there for a reason, and so we want to know, what has Jude said? Why has he picked these words, and what's he saying with them? And it's here that Jude sets his tone. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Do you see who the letter was from? It's not from Jude the big deal. You know, Jude the heavyweight theologian. Jude the great, Jude the boss. It's from Jude, the servant He starts off by introducing himself as as someone under the the authority of another. His identity and status secure and bound up not in himself but someone else. This isn't Jude kind of being derogatory but it's an honorific term. He's a servant of Christ. He's an ambassador of the king of the universe. Think back into the first century and imagine you were one of Caesar's slaves. Well, as you'd go around, you would carry the authority of Caesar. You would be worthy of the respect that people would give to the emperor. And so Jude here introduces himself as one underneath, but carrying the authority of a greater Caesar, a greater king. And he's writing to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And I think we just need to let those words wash over us, to not pass over them just with our brains, but to connect with our hearts too. Because Jude tells God people about the objective realities that should captivate them. People not identified by a a geographical or an ethnic marker, but a spiritual one. Marks that apply just as well to you and I today as they did all the way back then. A people who have been called by God's sovereign choice, selected for this destiny and caught up in the plan of God. People not just chosen, but loved. And loved not just by a distant deity, but a personal father. One involved with and caring for his people. And again, not just called, not just loved by a father, but also kept for a son, 
guarded by a God who protects his people in a world often hostile to them and who guarantees to bring them home. As we'll see as we go through the rest of the letter, that Jude will challenge the false assurance of some false believers. But right at the start, his opening words are like a symphony of encouragement that should ring in your ears, reminding God's people that those whom he has called, he will keep. True believers need not fear, because he will keep us loyal to his Son and bring us home on that final day. And to drive it home, he piles up three more terms. In verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Jude's trying to to make a point. He's trying to get us to feel this. And if you're a Christian here today, then, then these truths are for you. Truths that will keep you when the world seems dark. Truths that will keep you when the career fails, or it seems like you're just running to stand still. Because Jude would have you know that you are called, you are loved, and you will be kept, guarded and protected by the Father for the Son. And if you're, you're here tonight, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're just looking in, well, do you see the wonder of the hope that Christians have? To be called, loved, and kept by by this God. And the remarkable thing here is that, that this offer of mercy and peace and love is still, out, still held out today. This God is still in the business of calling people to himself. And as a church family, we'd love nothing more than to help you along that journey. And so Jude, having made such a positive connection with his hearers, moves us on together. And just picture him at the moment, Jude, picture him rising from his seat as he writes. His his heart rate suddenly quickened. His eyes sharpened, his mind on full alert. Because he's got an urgent call for God's people to stand firm in the gospel. And it's a call I think we need to hear loud and clear today as well. Uh, Look down with me again at verse 3. I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, The word Jude uses here for contending is a really strong word. It's a language of exerting intense effort, of dedication. Jude wants God's people on their feet as well. It's not something passive, passive we can just doze through, but an exhortation to prepare ourselves. I wonder, have you, have you ever seen a, a rugby match, maybe some of the rugby yesterday? I've got very few acknowledgements of this this morning, but I'm hoping that you might be with me now. I wonder if, if you've seen it. If you get to the point where there's a scrum. You, you, hold on, Mary, we'll get there. Um, you've got... You, Oh, and you get <laughs> and you get eight big men, the, the big eight biggest men on the pitch come together to scrum down, to compete with all of their might, straining every sinew to try and win the ball. And while they do that, you've got seven backs who get to have a rest. You know, time to check that their hair's okay, that they've not been contaminated by any mud. Well, hold that image, and, and Jude wants God's people to be like those forwards. Intensely engaged, not just not switching off, but eyes open to the situation before them. He wants us like the athlete committed to the race, 
straining intensely, fighting with all their might. And I wonder, as we sit here this evening, how do you think you compare to Jude's challenge? What's your reaction to his call for a response? And notice in that that his call isn't to contend for any faith, but it's to contend for the faith. Verse 3. The apostolic faith, once for all entrusted to the saints, the faith with all of its life-changing requirements and obedience to Jesus. As an old preacher in London, a guy called Dick Lucas said, in Jude, the Christian faith is already in existence as a settled final body of saving truths. It's not open to tweaking or correcting as if God got it wrong and needed to come back and have a second try. He's spoken finally with goodness and clarity and those who he has called are asked to live that out. And so verse 3 finishes with a call for God's people to be on their feet, ready to contend for all of the gospel. And it's one of the reasons as a church we're so keen that you have a Bible in your hands each Sunday. It's why there's one under every seat. It's why we long for you to have it open with whoever's preaching to make sure that whatever someone says matches up with what God has eternally said. Because this is the faith once for all entrusted to God's people. And so having laid out the gospel there to contend for, Jude then moves them on in verse 4. He goes on to contrast it with a threat to be challenged. Because there is an error worth contending against. The utter security that these believers are established with is set against the insecurity of some imposters. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. It's striking, isn't it, that he writes of these ungodly people who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. It's striking that if Jude were writing today, well, he he wouldn't need to change a word. These verses are upfront and real about the challenges that face Christianity. The true faith is being challenged by certain people and the church needs to have her eyes open to it. Certain people that have have slipped in. Church families apparently unaware until it was too late. When he talks about slipping in, Jude's not trying to conjure up the idea of of, um, someone all dressed in black with a balaclava on, jumping from pillar to pillar in the balcony or, or standing behind the bookshelves hoping that no one will notice them while they whisper out things that aren't true. He's speaking to a church family where people seem to have wormed their way in well enough and deep enough to require the surgery of this letter. Now notice that it's the problem with people who have slipped in. Christians are certainly called to contend with the faith for those who wouldn't call themselves believers. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It seems to be far more problematic, far less clear-cut. And it's precisely because it's not black and white that they seem to have just come in under the radar. Their entrance was secret because of the way they presented themselves. And evidently their their behaviour and their words initially didn't seem to alert people to the danger of what they really believed. 
And so just like the messages of the, the Ranges community or the Love is Love movement that seems so attractive and so appealing, Jude now wants to step in to unmask the danger and the error for us. And so there are two questions I think he asks that we're going to work through. The first is, what do you love? It's his first diagnostic to try and get underneath the surface. These are ungodly people who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. The danger isn't isn't that these people don't believe in God. It isn't that they aren't focused on grace. They, They clearly believe both. They sound like good evangelicals. They'd, they'd sign up to the 39 articles. They'd recite all of the, the orthodox creeds that we'd go for. But while they love to talk of grace, they twist it. Abusing it, perverting it, responding to God's free offer of the gospel by taking his kindness as an excuse to sin all the more. Rejecting calls for repentance and using Jesus as just a, a ticket to sensual indulgence. Their love, Jude tells us, are on what they want. Their love, their desires. Grace is just an excuse for immorality. A free ride. Everything centred on self-satisfaction. Personal gratification instead of responsibility. Self-fulfilment instead of and self-worth rather than self-denial and self-control. And before we dismiss that, here tonight... Do you, do you see the appeal? I guess more than that, do you feel the appeal of what these people are suggesting? Do you feel the pull of those who would just loosen the bounds ever so slightly of sexual purity? Downplaying the seriousness of watching porn, homosexual sex, living with your partner, doesn't it preach so well or sound so easy? Wouldn't it make those conversations at work just slightly less tricky? How dare you judge someone, they say. How dare you say immorality is, God, is wrong? Don't you believe in a God of grace? And I wonder if it's helpful for us to realise that there is, there is real pleasure in sin, at least for a season. Here's what one author would write on it. He says, adulterous sex, for example, is great in kind of the raw hormonal sense. It's forbidden, it's new. You can take on this exciting new persona. And yes, of course, you were bored and your spouse didn't meet your needs and finally you found someone who understood you. To gloss over that is to leave us unprepared for temptations. Sin can feel really good. It kills us but it feels good. And since it has its appeal, we must start its defence long before the temptation gets close. This cheap grace on offer is like a false liturgy that reshapes and re- mi- mi- misorders what we love. It's like jumping into the sea, swimming around for a while, only to realise you're 50 metres further down the coast without really moving a muscle. And so Jude would ask, who and what do you love? He wants to highlight the power of our loves, the directing of our desires, the rival visions of life that will just entice us away from the narrow way of Christ. 
this cheap grace, this grace without repentance and confession, grace just as a license to sin all the more, Jude says is a mark of ungodliness. A sure mark of an absence of saving faith. And he warns, verse 4, that its result is condemnation. And the person who commits the affair soon finds that it's devastated their marriage. Those who joined the Ranjneesh community soon find themselves caught up and trapped in a web of a cult. Those who use grace as a free excuse for sin find themselves under the condemnation of God. Friends, we must contend against the lie that we can ignore God's lordship and he'll just be okay with it. He's absolutely a God of grace, but he's a God of holiness too, and the two go hand in hand together. And a personal encounter with his grace does not allow us to play fast and loose with immorality as if we're saved for sensuality, but rather it saves us from sensuality and for sanctification. And so let me ask, if someone were to look at your church attendance, your phone history, if they could unmask your desires, would Jesus be one love among many? Or would he be the love that trumps all loves? And having contended for what we really love, the second part of Jude's question is to ask who we really serve. And the move seems to quickly come with these guys from anti-restriction to anti-authority. And just like they'd never deny grace, they'd never deny Jesus' lordship either. Sure, Jesus was real. He's just relegated a little bit. Did you notice Jews' deliberate wording at the end of the verse? They deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now he's just one amongst many. He's competing with my social media feeds, with my desires, my, the views of my peers, my ambitions for my self-gratification. The failure to obey Jesus in our morality shows a denial of him as our Lord because it denies him as the only sovereign under whom we serve. These people seem to love Jesus as the grace giver but reject him as the Lord, taking his gifts but refusing to submit to his headship at the same time. And in doing so, they reveal that they just don't get who he is. And so as we bring, just begin to draw things together, remember, friends, who Jude's talking to here. He's speaking to insiders, to people in the pews and in the pulpit, to people like me and you. Because these verses here belong to the church, highlighting the daily temptation within our hearts just to presume upon grace. That niggling, persistent desire to get out from underneath authority, from biblical authority, be that in morality or civil life or sexuality. A desire that's so problematic and in most cases self-destructive. And in the case of these guys in Jude, it seems to be eternally destructive. But Jude will model gospel sense of maturity for us because Jude delights to call himself the servant in verse 1. Willingly and joyfully submitting to God's rule. But Jude the servant doesn't want our eyes focused on him. Jude wants our eyes focused on the king he serves. And just as he points out our often disordered loves and our frequently misdirected service, 
he reminds us of a greater servant and a greater love. And so as we see Jude's warnings, we must cling to the one who gave up heaven itself to be the servant of all. The one who set his face like flint to the task that God had gave him. Contending against those who would water down God's holiness and the requirements of discipleship. Because in Jesus we see the one who perfectly contended for the faith on our behalf. The suffering servant whose sacrifice was written about long before taking our sins and our failings to the cross where he would bear the condemnation we deserve. Isn't the majesty of the gospel that Jude wants us on our feet contending for, the fact that it was our only sovereign Lord who refused every temptation to sin, taking instead the immorality of the very people like you and me who would deny him. And that sovereign Lord, having borne the punishment for our sins, now sits enthroned and calls to us as his people to contend for the gospel of grace under his lordship. And so as we finish, I I wonder what might this look like? Let me give you an illustration from two friends of mine. Uh, They're true stories, but I've changed their names for obvious reasons. Uh, The first we'll call Ed. Ed, uh, well, I used to play rugby with Ed. He'd call himself a Christian. He'd happily talk to some of the other guys about how he'd go to church. He loved the message of God's grace. It was like a mantra to him. The difficulty was he'd grasped Jesus' grace without grasping his lordship as well. And so week after week, Ed would have no problem with getting absolutely hammered in the bar at the end of a game, always on the lookout for another girl to take home. Now, we used to to chat about this, and he'd kind of just brush off any words of caution, reminding me that God's gracious, bro, He'll just forgive me. And once or twice a month, he'd wander back into church as if nothing was the matter. Now that said, my my other friend we'll we'll call Sam. Sam and I have known each other for a number of years. He's a solid Christian guy. But Sam knows his heart as well. He knows how much he's tempted to use grace as an excuse for immorality. And so he's, he's desperate to fight against it. And so he tries to take every step possible to battle the sin in his heart. For example, Sam's a single guy, and he knows that if he had a smartphone, he would use it to look at porn. Late at night, behind the safety of a locked door, he knows that at some point he would give in. And so Sam physically put his iPhone in a bin. He just got rid of it and replaced it with a phone that can only text or call. For him, living for Jesus was more important than using grace and perverting grace as just an excuse to sin. And so each Sunday, Sam will head back to church, clinging to the gospel, seeking to live under Christ's lordship, knowing he's been called, loved, and kept. Now, I know that that many of us might be required to use smartphones for our job. Um, I'm not saying we need to get rid of them, but I wonder, the question is, do you see the difference between the two people? Now, which one do you want to be like? Someone asked me after the service this morning, what does it really look like for us to be people who are on our feet contending for the gospel? I think that the main part of that is is having our hearts so gripped by grace. It's not another work to do. It's, It's clinging to Jesus. It's contending for biblical grace. 
being aware of our hearts, being prepared to stand and fight, being prepared to call those around us in the service here in our small groups to recognise Jesus' outrageous grace but his outrageously good lordship as well. We want to be people who stand up to contend for the true gospel, not watering it down, not giving you an excuse to slide away, to see the condemnation that comes with that and to be the people who stand firm. You see, the issues that Jews people faced all those centuries ago are remarkably modern, aren't they? The dangers that flowed towards the church then are the same rivers that meander through our doors today. Now, Jude will give us some really practical advice later on in in verses 20 and 21. But right now, he'd remind us to be on our feet again, eyes open, minds alert, because the gospel, the true gospel we have in our hands is worth contending for. The issues on the table are those of Christ's lordship and a biblical view of grace. And so Jude calls to us, he calls to me and to you. Will we push back from Jesus towards condemnation? Or will we stand up with him to contend for this faith? Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Wouldn't that be a great thing for us to pray today? Let me close by doing that. Father, we thank you that in, in this Bible, in your gospel, you have given us everything we need to know for salvation and godliness. Father, we confess that so often our hearts are torn. We are so tempted to use your grace as just an excuse to sin in whatever form that takes. Please forgive us for that, and we thank you that we cling to one who has already borne that condemnation in our place. Father, please would you help us here tonight to be people who contend to stand up for this gospel of grace in all of its glory, living under your lordship. In the great name of your Son. Amen.